Hi, this is Cam Smith, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. The cat is out of the bag. The sound is all different. Um, this is what we call a freezer show. And you came up with that term, didn't you? Yeah, you, you know, when you, you, you make too much of something and you put it in the back of the freezer and then mm. some days it's just a bit too hard mm. to get the pots and pans out. So you grab something out of the freezer, whack it in the microwave. Mm. I like to think that this is warming up something that was absolutely delicious at, at the first thing <laughs> yes. and, and you're coming back for a second go of it. So let's just do what we normally do on a Sunday, which is just look back over our shoulder and yes. go, Dr. Shane and all those scientists, they are so brainy. What a great Easter show they did. Yes. And also, well, let's look back a little bit further and go radiotherapy. Thank you very, very much. Um, we've got some good stuff. We do. We've gone a fair way back in the time machine. So, um, yeah, I'm trying to work out, what, what do we start with again? <laughs> we start, let's have a look at the rundown here. Yeah, here we go, running uh, sheet. So, from uh, a few years ago now, we speak to a, um, maybe the most prominent Frenchman in this fair town, would you say? I'd agree with that. So, from, yeah, 2017, we talked to Gabriel Gatte and... Let's face it, Easter Sunday is about sweet things, and uh, also from a you know anthropological anthropological point of view, it's about going out and finding your fortune. If we yes. do that, but uh, Gabriel Gatte has or did do a book about desserts, and he talks about some great classics, and well, he just has that fabulous accent. Yeah, yeah. So Gabriel Gatte to start us off, uh, and then oh, Victor Leong. Down at Lee Ho Fook, mm-hmm. um, a beautiful restaurant. If you haven't been there before, I recommend that you go there. Uh, Victor talks to us about some of his signature dishes and one of the main ones which I kind of swoon over and it's a little bit embarrassing listening back to it, don't you reckon? <laughs> yes. The crispy eggplant with uh, with the uh, sweet vinegar or sweet and sour vinegar sauce that goes with it. One of the truly great dishes of Melbourne. And then we talk to what we call a younger Seb Rayborn, because this is going way back, isn't it? I think we're all a bit younger. This was from 2013, and uh, we had Seb in for quite a long chat about one of his favourite, one of our favourite cities from a cocktail perspective. The Crucible of the Empire, I think oh, you called nice it. I think, I think it's your yeah. line. Um, we're talking, of course, about London. Yes. Um, and we have a long chat about uh, the cocktail history of London, how it's influenced the second wave of cocktails here in this fair town. Um, and that was from 2013, a long time ago. But, um, yeah, we all sound a bit younger. It's a bit weird. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. And we talk about a place that, yeah, it was. I mean, let's face it, when the empire was at its height, London was the centre of the universe. And great cocktails came from there. And, well, if you're going to have anybody to elucidate and just give you the feeling of what it was like and what these things taste like, well, you can do a lot worse than get Sebastian mm. Rayborn, don't you think? Yes. I do indeed. Now, um, chocolate. It's a beautiful thing. Um, I've been chewing on... I, I haven't really had that many eggs for, for this Easter, but I have had uh, what is 
the biggest block of Toblerone I've ever seen. Oh, really? Well, you know, they say never eat anything bigger than your head. This doesn't qualify? <laughs> no, well, it's huge. Um, and I'm talking about, yeah, the Toblerone, which is, uh, of course, based on a Swiss mountain range. And if you, uh, if you hold it just right, it just looks exactly like... With a bit of imagination. Well, yeah, you've yeah. Got to, you, in, indeed. You do have to use your own imagination. But look... Whatever you've got in front of you, whether it's uh, fine Swiss chocolate, if it's maybe a slightly grainy Australian chocolate, <laughs> uh, maybe it's those American bars with peanuts yeah. in them, yeah. it's, it is all good. But uh, again, I say, one of the interesting things for me is about that Easter hunt, which is different from Christmas, which is drawing in the family close to the hearth, Easter is about the hunt and sending the kids out into the world to seek their fortune and find eggs. Mm. Mm. So, without much further ado, it's pre-recorded. It's from the freezer, but we love it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It's Easter Sunday here on 3 Triple RFM. Now, we pulled some stuff out of the freezer and we found Gabriel Gatte from 2017 talking about the joy, the beauty of desserts. And it sounds like this here on 3 Triple R FM. My God, Gabriel Gattay is here. He's come back. <laughs> um, he's got a fabulous book. We're talking about the end of the meal and how you can make that spectacular. Learn fruits make wonderful desserts, do they not? Absolutely. Mm. In Australia, when you look at, you go to a fruit shop at any mm. time of the year, and yes. it's amazing what there is. And I've always been surprised that for example, with the pineapple, you know the pineapple. Yes, it was grown in uh, by the kings of France in seventeen hundred and something because oh, it was like seen make... as an extraordinary fruit. Yes, is this the same as you make the orangeries? Yes, your... yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's an unusual thing, but the the pastry chefs of the time were actually using it. Yes, and when I did my apprenticeship. 46 years ago, in country France, mm. from time to time, we would make an, a pineapple sorbet, which is oh. extraordinary. And you don't, nobody serves pineapple in, in top restaurants here. No. And yet, it's one of the most powerful fruits. It's one fruit that can become a mousse, can become an ice cream. It's fabulous, very, very thinly sliced. Mm. It, Hard to you know, make jellies from because of the enzymes. Yes, of and course. That's one thing that I Yes, yeah. Just one but, thing. But, you yeah. know, yes. at, at the end of a top meal, the jelly, you can do without it, you know? Yes, like, that's true. <laughs> uh, but there's so much you can do with it and that it is not very much used. The same with mangoes in top restaurants, very rarely. You see a little bit of raspberries, but they're often cut in half and you have got two halves or three halves as a garnish, but never mm. very generously. You, it's the pudding kind of desserts that you find. Mango tatata. That's lovely. It is. It is beautiful. Hello. We just said there's a profound silence just came on yes, the room. Yes. Uh, in, in there. So anyway, so the point is uh, we've about ooh, six and a half minutes to go. 
fruits can be a wonderful vehicle for, first of all, for the nutrition of people to have fruits, vitamins and things like that. But there are so many desserts. One that Matt wanted to pull you up about. Did I? Yes, you did. <laughs> Look at you. Oh, what? yes, I did, yes. Oh, good. Because okay. well, we were just thinking, cause I, cause we were talking in the car on the way. Because mm. if I normally if I choose a dessert at a restaurant, I'd sort of normally lean Italian. Yes. So I'd normally yeah. go with an avogato or with a tiramisu. Tiramisu. And there's a recipe for a tiramisu of in the course. book. It's a great classic. It's okay. Right. Yes. Uh, no, you know what? Remember. Come on, tell I, us the I, French I don't do a bre- <laughs> It's not a Brexit. We are Europeans. <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am European and my fellow and is Italian. <laughs> we sleep in the same bed. <laughs> oh, I love it. I never thought we'd, we'd be able to, no, to no, bring no that No, no, no problem, Swiss. <laughs> t- tiramisu is, is one of the favorites. Oh, it's a classic. It's like picking the favorite children. Have you got a favorite or maybe a top one, two or three? Or desserts? Yeah, go on. You know what? It's an interesting question. I almost say, mm. uh, often say, it's a young people's, a young person's question. Oh, okay. <laughs> this is good. It's nice. But, no, no, That's the nicest thing you said to when, me all day. <laughs> when you are young, yeah. you have a de- definite favorite. Yes. You know, this is what I like. Well, it's like, what's your favorite music? You know, it's like, well, that's it. Yeah. And and uh, as you get older, you have a seasonal favorite, mm-hmm. like at this time of the year. Yes. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the the tartatin, okay. you know, the pears or things like that. And um, you can have a favorite for for a dinner. I, I think a, a souffle, a <laughs> well-made souffle, yeah. modern souffle, where you have a, an ice cream with it and. It, it's extraordinary. Chocolate souffle with raspberry puree yes. poured into it. Well, it's fabulous. It's fabulous, yeah. Okay. It's, fa- it's extraordinary. It's, yeah. uh, and then there's, you know, nowadays uh, when you can make some very thin meringues and you have got ice creams, a great mm. pavlova. Mm. I think a pavlova where the, f- the, the, the texture is just perfect, you know, with the crunchy, crunchy the crunch on, the outside, on top. Give in the yeah, middle. Give in the middle. What's on top then, of it? Oh, you have got to have a number of fruits. Okay. You have got to be generous. Right. Of course, some cream. Yes. Some cream to make the contrast. Yes. And then passion fruits. Passion fruit. Passion, passion fruit. You have got to have the passion fruit. We're going to be prescriptive. And oh, Nigel's nodding his head. And, <laughs> and then, no, Nigel's still here. I, but I love yes. it with mangoes. I love it with raspberries. I love it. Uh, I have this summer because I have uh, an apricot tree at my place. Mm. I put some apricots just slowly, you know, until mm. they... They were ripe, you know, yes. like they poached them. They're just amazing. They are. And then atop uh, the pavlova with some apricots and passion fruit and a few raspberries. And it was just heaven. Yes. Apricot, that's another fruit that is totally underestimated. It it's is. It's one of the great, great fruits of the world. Soft, beautifully delicate. From great. the tree when they are ripe. That's, that's oh. the problem is that we have a difficulty getting some good ones. But when you have a tree, you're... You learn again what an apricot is. Same with the peach. Yes. You get a, you get a sun ripened peach, and it is yes. uh, an epiphany. Um, okay, so that's one that you said was one of your favourites. Can you say maybe a couple more? If we dig a little bit deeper. Well, you know what? Uh, I love anything with poached peaches. Yes, I think the peach peach is an extraordinary. Takes this flavour yeah. of chocolate so well, yeah. does it not? A big pun. It takes the flavour of chocolate, so amazing. The, yes. the, the, oh, hang on, you said peaches. peaches. I was thinking pears. No, I had yeah, a, peaches. I meant to think. No, the peaches. poached pear, that's a classic. Yeah. A poached pear in winter with vanilla ice cream and hot chocolate sauce. 
I've got that in the book. And that's one of the things yes, that sir. if you are frightened of doing desserts, Matt, you're listening. I sure am. Okay, good. Well, I'm thinking <laughs> that um, that maybe a poached pear would be a great thing to do because making it's a not syrup difficult. is a very, very simple, simple thing. If you can get a ratio happening. Peel the pears, drop them in. Yeah, the pears, drop them in. You got it? Pot, mm-hmm. No, poach them slowly until they are ready. So you test with a knife. It can take 20 minutes or it can take half an hour. It depends on, on, the, on pear. the pear. Yeah. And then you let it cool down in your syrup. But, you know, you get some beautiful vanilla ice cream. You, you make a little hole to put the pear on top. You <laughs> melt a bit of cream with some really good cooking chocolate. Yeah. You make a, a chocolate sauce over that. And you garnish, you, you uh, uh, toast some, uh, some almonds, yeah. some flake almonds, yes. and put on top of that. So you have the crunch of the almonds, the cold ice cream, the hot chocolate sauce, and the texture of the pear. Simple and so delicious. And it was served in every restaurant 100 years ago. Yeah. So it's not new. No, it's not, it's, it's not innovation. But it has not lost any of its, its beauty. And it's kept its thing because yes. it is still so valid. Now, a chocolate dessert is, mm. is still good, like a good chocolate cake that is not too rich. And I say with the chocolate cake, you, I always tell people that because they say, oh, you know, it's rich, the calorie and all of that and blah, blah, blah. And blah, 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 blah. Yes, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I say, well, with the chocolate cake, mm. the first mouthful is, is fa- fabulous. The second yes. one, you say, gosh, I had forgotten how good that was. The third one, you say, this is so bloody good. The, fir- the fourth one is nice. And that's enough. Yeah, you, that's you, don't need, you don't need that wedge that is filling a quarter of your plate. Yes, that's it. So, uh, But rethink this book. So it's called So French, So Sweet. Uh, available in all good bookstores. is published by SBS, I think it is. Yeah, with Hardy yeah. Grant. Um, how much? 40, 50? 30. 30. Uh, it's, uh, 29.95. Oh, and it's hardcover yes, too. Nowadays, um, it is, uh, that's the price of books. And it has gone down compared to uh, 20 years ago. We were paying 50 bucks for books. Which is, uh, it's a, that's a praise Jesus moment here on, uh, on the Sabbath on Sunday. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It's so good you're here. We have got some stuff out of the freezer just for you. This is special. It's Victor Leong from Lee Ho Fook. And this comes, well, not so far back, 2018. Ah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Three Triple R, and all is good here on Sunday. Yeah, I got cheese in front of us. Victor Leong, a very, very good afternoon to you. How are you? Oh, better for seeing you. It's uh, it's good. Thank you, first of all, for giving up uh, part of your Sunday. Although Lee Ho Fook is open on uh, Sunday evenings from six p.m. Correct. Correct. Tick, I got my first question right. This is uh, this uh, this interview is going well, man. Um, and um, I've been remiss. There's two victors which we should have had on a lot earlier. So I'm sorry it's taken so long to finally drag you in here to East Brunswick to have a chat. But um, Lee Ho Fook, tell us a, a little bit about the place and the space that you inhabit within. Postcode 3000. So Lee Ho Fook um, in its current location is um, just down the, down the bottom of a laneway called Duckboard Place. Mm. Um, quite iconic because it kind of loops around to ACDC Lane. 
Yeah, originally um, in Collingwood, yeah? Yes, yeah. we started the, um, the restaurant in Collingwood on Smith Street, um, and then we moved it into the current location about two and a half years ago. Um, and it, when I first saw the site, it was one of those things where I said, you know, this is an awesome location to to have a project kind of like a restaurant you know um it was a wool store uh built in the 1920s in yes. that whole area used to be um rag traders and you know garment makers and because it used to be a manufacturing correct, area correct yeah yeah so this the um so leho fook was the basically like the, the that little precincts little wool store so you know we kept the crane the crane used to crane the bales of um of wool upstairs and used to be processed to yarn and then sold back into the kind of the area it's mm. really kind of um gorgeous space it's two floors um you know the brickwork and all the you know the alcoves and all the kind of uh, timber we've kept in the and original condition and a beautiful pitched exactly. ceiling is that like a pitched yeah, ceiling anyway it's got all the beautiful uh, the bracing the, mm. the wooden bracing and it's a really, really great contemporary space, a mixture of old and new. Is it true about Squizzy Taylor being yeah, inhabiting there? Apparently, he, um, he, he, he did own it for a little bit, and um, it was a, a warehouse for his bootlegging operation for a very short time. Gotcha. That's, um, yeah, that's, the his, that's part of the history. So that, that, that was, he, he, yeah. uh, Squizzy was in there. Now, um, you've come in there, and, um, of course... Originally, we'll get through that. We may as well do this pretty quickly because we want to get on to the meat of the interview, if you like, <laughs> using the food analogy. Um, but uh, originally, Sydney? Yeah, so... Ori- Dan Hong, Galileo? Correct. Yeah, correct. So originally, I'm from Sydney. I moved to Melbourne in 2013 to open Leho Fook, which is, um, you know, most What brought exciting. you down here? Well, the idea... Culture? Yeah, culture. Integrity? You know, I, I've oh, sorry, always culture. loved, yes. you know, Melbourne. You know, yes. I've always thought that, you know, I'd, I'd probably eventually settle here or, you know, have... Um, Live a part of my life here. You get a Melbourne kind of vibe, Victor. <laughs> you were being wasted up there in that in no, that other place. Yeah, Sydney's not really my scene, you know. I think, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, I I did have a great time, you know, growing up there, and you know, a, a big part of my life is from there. But you know, I, I love I love being, you know, part of the Melbourne food scene, and you know, operating here. You know, the people are lovely. It's a great city to be around. You know, the culture. The you know, it's a gorgeous place. Um, yeah, just just loving it here. And one of the things, when you first opened Leo Fook, I'm just wondering what sort of informed what you wanted to do. Um, I did a cursory amount of, you know, quick little, mm. let's face it, uh, internet searches. And one thing stood out for me, and so you said one of the things that sort of defined your style was Spartan with a dash of orange. Yes. Yeah? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I like – yeah, that's actually – that's the first line of my business plan, actually. How did you get that? Um, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's um, – I really like the idea of pairing something back, especially, you know, um, Chinese – you know, I've always kind of been obsessed with, you know, Chinese food, Chinese culture, and, you know, yes. it's very rich, diverse. It's, you know, it goes back a long time, and it's a lot of kind of – A few, uh, few decades. Yeah, you know, it's had, it's had a few runs on the board. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, but what's cool is then it's like, you know, it's, what's, what's also awesome about uh, Melbourne is, you know, they, they have a great understanding of that because, you know, it is probably the oldest um, Chinese community in Australia here. Since 1852. Yeah. You know, it's a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, being in a city where it's kind of been ingrained and, you know, a big part of the culture, I think, then it comes with an understanding where when you start, you know, kind of um, – 
redoing the puzzle a little bit. It's okay because yeah, we, exactly. we already understand yeah, the foundations. Exactly. Totally. We, we totally. can see that house that's already been built and we can understand the yes, annex or the, exactly. the additions that exactly. you put to it. So um, that was one of the kind of most appealing things about operating out of uh, Melbourne and and starting Lee Hofuck was because that, you know, there was – you know, it was an audience that would understand it a little bit better. And mm. then I felt that I could fit, you know, um, my kind of personality, my creativity and my style a little bit better here than I would anywhere else in Australia. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, very, very, very much so. Um, so when you did open up uh, Lee Ho Fook, how did it go? How, how, did, you, how, how did that go? In, in it was getting... awesome. You know, I think it's like, you know, I, I always kind of, Compare it to, you know, a real angsty creative artist that releases his first album after being signed. It's always going to be, you know, the one that is just bursting with creative free, like, you know, creative kind of angst. And, you know, like it's the the opportunity to finally kind of just let it all out. And, and you know, the audience are, are loving it. So it was Cause, it cause felt your menu is your album. Isn't exactly. It, yeah, it yeah, felt yeah. exactly yeah. like that opening kind of, you know, the pro, um, Leho Fook. When it first started, it felt like, you know, I finally had a kitchen that that was built to do the food that I wanted to do. And, you know, I'm not a, an expert on, say, Chinese cuisine, but I think, you know, I was an expert on the food that I wanted to present, you know what I mean? So it was kind of like, hey, you know, I might not be this guitar maestro, but I like, you know, adding guitar into my, you know, music. Into the mix. Ex- yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it really felt like that, you know, like kind of building building a kitchen that, you know, felt exactly like how I wanted to do it and cooking the food, you know, um, progressively exactly like how I wanted to to be expressed creatively, and that was awesome. Did you have any anything sort of special in the way that you wanted your kitchen to be and to function and to look? Well, yeah, definitely. You know, the functionality part is you know it's 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 a it's a an amalgamation of all your your experiences, you know, um, and you you know there's obviously a few uh, quirks and tweaks in there that. Um, are exactly like how you want it, which helps. But then, you know, I'm I'm looking at it in terms of like a longer-term creativity where the understanding is, you know, I'm also learning a lot about Chinese cuisine while I'm cooking this kind of thing too. We always are, aren't we? That's, That's the, right. one of the things as we get older we really That's understand. Right. And the other th- – and what was cool about that was, um, you know – I can't do this by myself. So it's a lot of, you know, my, the staff or, you know, the chefs that come through and, and they want to learn this, this, this amazing um, cuisine as well. I have mm. to almost code it in a language where, you know, anyone that, say, could cook before, had prior experience before, could come into the kitchen and not feel like, oh, you know, I have an apprehension of cooking Chinese food because, you know, I don't understand the palates. But then it's like, look, it's, you know, you can cook though. So it's, I need to make it in, you know, almost write it in a language where everyone who knows the kind of fundamentals of how to cook to be able to achieve, you know, what we, what we're trying to kind of um, express in the restaurant. So that was really cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you don't sort of excuse the clumsy analogy that you hit the, a great food wall. Yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, you have to be Chinese to cook Chinese food, which I think is bullshit. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think yeah. it's um, it's that, you know, yeah, you, you know, I'm sure you can say, for example, cook a piece of fish, but this is how we cook our piece of fish here. And then it's like, okay, how do we season something? This is, you know, the understanding of seasoning comes from this and it's, you know, levels of, you know, um, salt, sweet, um, you know, umami, richness and all these things are from ingredients. And that's all coded in, an, in a recipe that's cut into grams and mm. it's all um, exactly like you know, consistently the same every time. You know, one person who really nailed it for me, I think, was actually a, is a honky. 
is Neil Perry. Mm. And Neil Perry actually put out a book a while ago, I don't know if you've seen it, called Just Balance and Harmony. Mm -hmm. And it was this ethos in the forward that underpins the whole book. And it's sort of like once you get an understanding of that, then you really start to get your head around the ethos of Chinese cuisine. Is that a true statement? I think it's also because, you know, for example, you'd go to like the supermarket and you'll see – you know, like 15 different brands of soy sauce. And then if yes. someone says light soy, there's, you know, 10 brands of light soy. So it's like having <laughs> or, an understanding. Or white soy. Yeah, exactly. So having the understanding of how every one of these, you know, uh, taste and function is basically like picking a style of, say, light red wine. So, you know, there's Gamay, there's Pinot. So it's just understanding Beaujolais, exactly yeah, the, yeah, all yeah. of this. So it's, it's exactly like that, but in a savory palette and also like why we use it. And you've got to, you know, um, almost – Right now, educate the guys on how to how to use it and apply it properly. <laughs> yeah. I know it's very complex. There, there, was, very no, complex. there was an implied threat in that last <laughs> no, no, little bit. It's, it's in very complex. Using it properly. Yeah, it's very it's very be... complex, but it's it's, it's a fun experience. <laughs> you know, and and that's the thing. Like the All way right. I, you know, my palate's different to yours, and you know, yeah. who am I to tell you how to cook the food that you're going to eat? So mm. it's exciting. It's still very exciting. Can I ask? Um, I, I'm going to ask you to maybe divulge something, and if you want to tell me no, I don't want to do it. You can just tell me to go jump but there's there's a couple things there's so many things i love eating off your menu and i've only been able to experience it a couple times but there's one that has been remarked upon by a lot of different people and it is bringing something so simple as eggplant he's nodding his head already going yes i know this cam but um i think this is probably um helicopter harden Hard case, Harden, um, who, who writes for Gourmet Travellers. Sorry, that's an in-joke. Um, but there is this, this dish, eggplant with red vinegar, and I'll just give his description of it. Eggplant cigars inside a toffee crisp batter sluiced with red vinegar for sweet and sour brilliance. It's amazing how something so simple can be so profound, and I'm just wondering, tell me about, just that, about that dish and how you put it together. Well, yeah, you know, I've heard about the last two yeah. minutes we've got. No, it's because, you know, I've always wanted a, a dish that was, you know, kind of simple. You yeah. Know? Um, and also, like, that would kind of impact everybody, you know, because everyone's been like, oh, I like eggplant or yeah, I've had yeah. eggplant before. Yeah, eggplant's um, right. And it's, it's actually, it was, it was cool because it was quite, you know, a, a sum of its parts, this dish, you know, I, um, I wanted to make a vegetarian dish, first of all. Yep. Second of all, I wanted it to almost be vegan yes. um, and not seasonal yes. and also um, consistent every time. Yes. Um, and it was basically like a reinvention of a Sichuan classic called uh, Fish Fragrant Eggplant. But yes. that's actually like a braise, braise caponata-style dish. You know, it's gotcha. like a, so, but I didn't want it like uh, that. Caponata, so, like agro-dolce. Yeah, sweet exactly. Tea, so yeah. it's always, you know, yeah. that kind of stewed Eggplant, yes. that, that's, you know, it's a braise. This ain't. Exactly. So I wanted it to be exciting and interesting, but still have the kind of a flavor profile and, you know, a little bit of like excitement in that. And, you know, you'd be happy to eat like something crunchy all the time as opposed to a big bowl of something, you know, um, yeah, sloppy yeah. and a little bit oily. Yes. And so that's, yeah, it was kind of a big uh, mix, mishmash of all those things that kind of arrived at this. So I would say to everybody out there, it's um, um, I'm going to go all Molly Meldrum mm-hmm. and say, do yourself a favour. 
Um, this is almost like a bucket list thing. You've got to go to Lihofuk and just try this eggplant because it's amazing when something is elevated to something ordinary becomes extraordinary. And I think you've done that with that. And also, if I can just do big ups to the flavor profile, I can see Matt waving through the window. Um, the uh, the creme caramel with jasmine. Correct. Yeah. That is amazing. We're um, open seven days. Hey, come and see us. Um, Victor, you have to come back. Maybe we can um, talk about other dishes. I think we bring the two Victors. We're going to reform the band and bring you guys back. Amazing. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure for both of you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great that you've stuck along with us for this hour. And now we go way back. It's 2013. A young girl, Sebastian Rayporn, comes into the studio and he talks about one of his favourite cocktail towns. It's about London and the cocktails that came to define it. Let's roll that thinking, drinking theme now. Hey, look up for my glass over there. Yes, sir, Jimmy. What sort of drink you want? What sort of drink you want? Make it a double. Yeah. Somebody sing? Somebody sing? Let's drink. Oh, Lord, I was getting overwhelmed by that introduction. I had to turn down my headphones because it was just too exciting. Sebastian, I can hardly contain my excitement. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cam. Good How to see you, as clockwise? always. Clockwise? Yeah. Um, so, what has London ever done for us? Well, you, we picked this, um, the city as a conduit of great drinking. It is, and it's such a crucial place in the history of cocktails for both sort of the first non-American wave of cocktail phenomena and also where we are now, the second golden age of cocktails. And I think London's been so integral to that and it's really led that over the last 15 years. So it's good to talk about. Can I nail my colours on the mast and get this thing started and say London, the crucible of empire? Yeah, indeed. And probably the best cocktail that's indicative of that is the gin and tonic. Mm. You know, the gin, which is, you know, from from, yeah, the, from the Dutch defeating England, we get gin. Yeah, gin, <laughs> gin but gin. then you get the tonic water, you know, invented by Dr. Schweppes, by, you know, the government asked him to make quinine palatable because it doesn't taste very nice. I, I, I say old chaps, the, you know? the chaps need it out there, but it tastes like, just tastes damn awful. That's right. What and can so you do? He made this tonic, huh? tonic water that yeah. if you drank a prodigious amount would... would Ward off malaria then, obviously. I think we worked it out. Matt and I did this calculation <laughs> yeah. a few years ago, and it was about 300 litres. It's yes. a lot. It, it was a lot it's to a lot. actually have a medicinal <laughs> impact. Yeah, and sadly, the malaria now has changed again, so it won't work at all now. Yeah. So, But the tonic Damn. water is still with us. Yeah. And uniquely, London right now is the only capital city in the world mm. where Coca-Cola is not the number one mixer, and it's tonic. Bravo, bravo. It's mostly vodka tonic nowadays, but but gin and tonic was that that iconic colonial beverage, and it's come out of an era where the English didn't start off being great drinkers. Let's be honest; they, they really? drank they well. They you know there was a lot of rot gut, there was a lot of bad stuff 
we've got obviously that gin phenomena and you know gin lane of Hogarth's fame print. and all yeah, of yeah. that sort of stuff. It was and sort of it was the crack of its time. It was indeed. It and, was. It was the ice. And they drank terrible stuff, and it uh, started to a crack labs in the yeah. you know bathtub gin. You know, it did. It got, but it got better sort of mid eighteen hundreds, and mm. people started to drink good stuff because you had this 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 beautiful class system, of course. So the rich drank. French wine, French brandy, all of that sort of stuff. And the poor drank beer or poor quality rum and gin mixed with who knows what and as much sugar as they could get. Mother's ruin. Indeed. It was called, wasn't it? But you start to get this merging. And this merging is that sort of mid-1800s and you get very English punch and a couple of famous ones, Bishop and Negus. And so Bishop is sort of the English version of a, of a mulled wine. So oranges, red wine, cloves, nutmeg, sugar, and generally served hot. Because mm, obviously like in England, a, sounds like a glue vine. That's right. And so yeah. this is that English version. Version. Yes. And then Negus, which is sort of as it evolves, is basically the same thing, but with loads of brandy. Poured what the hell's in. Negus? Where does that so, come from? So Negus. All of these. Is that eponymous? Uh, is that named after we someone? We don't know. Negus. Well, I don't know. Definitely. Yeah, I don't know either. But you know, both Matt? of those. No, he's taking photos. Both of those are mentioned in in Dickens. Yes. Which is great. And obviously the cobbler is also mentioned in Dickens, another great, which I love. I love the cobbler, but which I requires know. lots of crushed ice. Yeah. But and good fruit. All of these drinks were, they, they had their base in wine. Whether they had some spirits added, whether they used different herbs and spices, it was all about bringing wine together. And mm. then you'd have a variation for the poor, which would be the same sort of drink, but with beer. So, so you yeah. had this sort of this class system sort of running through it. I say poor. Obviously, the rich did sometimes drink beer, and mm. probably the most famous of that is the black velvet, which I'm sure oh, we've I've all never heard got of. that. It's yeah. just that's just one of the most ridiculous drinks ever. 1861. Got to actually say it. Yeah. 1861. Prince Albert of, of piercing fame passes away. <laughs> yes. And Brooks Club in London. If you have to create, ask. Create, yeah. uh, you know, a. Um, I, I guess a, an, a cocktail to, to mourn the passing of the, the consort of the Queen. And it's half a pint of Guinness and a half a pint of champagne. And Ridiculous. <laughs> whether you I, like still, it or, I don't it get was, it. Do it you was get a, it? It was a Bond okay, cocktail sorry, in it. Diamonds of Forever. Yes. I, I think that's fantastic. But I, it, I mean, it's a weird drink, Guinness that's and champagne together. It's not a cocktail. Together. It's just two things mixed together. Where's the skill or anything in that? But, but the thing for me anyway, is, sorry. you know, yeah. it's half a pint of Guinness, which is black. Ah. And that is celebrating, obviously, the death. And then it's half a pint of champagne celebrating. I mean, it's sort of that weird sort of... Joie de vie you know, of life. Like, and... You know, long live the king. The king is dead. Long live the king. But I do love the fact that it is a full half a pint. That, you know, they don't muck around. It's just <laughs> a half a pint of so champagne. So that's per serve. That's per serve. All right, and oh, you're drinking in pints, and, Cam. Come on. Yeah, come on. What's come on, the matter with you? It's a royal funeral. Yeah, not come on. Around here. Get so. some patriotic further happening. Um, one of the things they do say is that a black velvet works really, really well with oysters. Yes. I make the champagne and oysters, you know, stout oh. and oysters. They're both great flavour matches. And the oyster's going to take away the flavour of the black velvet for sure. I have my <laughs> doubts, but let's move on. So the next sort of big phenomena that happens in London, and this is really where it gets interesting for us, is American Prohibition. Yeah. So in America, they outlaw bartending. If you're a bartender, you've just been made illegal. You're now officially some sort of criminal drug dealer. You're on the other side of the law, baby. So what do you do? Yeah. You go to the next English-speaking country, and that's England, and you had mm. a flood 
of people moving to England, moving to Europe, and this is really that first... All these men with nutmeg in their pockets. That's right. And this first global age of of cocktails, it's also just Mm. after the First World War. We've got the birth of jazz. We've got huge sort of population movements globally, and you have this merging and melding of cultures. And London became, and well, let's be honest, the the American bar at the Savoy Hotel became really the global centre of cocktails, rivalled only by another Englishman over at uh, Harry's New York Bar in Paris. And the guy running the the Savoy, the American Bar in in London, run by Harry Craddock, and the New York Bar in Paris, run by Harry McElhone. So there's these great similarities. And those two guys, really, so many of the classic cocktails we know and love today came from that, whether it's, you know, Hmm. the White Lady... Or what I'm going to make now, Corpse Reviver, number two. Corpse Reviver, number two. And I love. And uh, we must also mention there was another very, very famous Harry's Bar, and that was the one that was in Venice, was it not? That's right, um, and the Bellini, and same sort of era. So it seemed that you had to have worked in America, then worked in London, because all three of the Harry's had worked in London, and, and then opened a bar somewhere in Europe. So it was, it was a, a strong trend. And Harry's Bar sense. is still around, isn't it, in Venice? Harry's Bar, Venice, still there. The American Bar at Savoy is, is still there, absolutely. Yeah, okay. It's uh, <laughs> 12.46 here on 3 Triple R FM. We've got Sebastian Rayborn. We're talking about London as city. And uh, there you go. There's a sound effect for you. A corpse reviver. Um, number two. Number two. What happened to the first one? So gin. gin He's dead. The first one was a Still terrible, dead. terrible drink with brandy. But this is uh, gin, lemon, cointreau, lilay, which is a, a, a sweet vermouth, absinthe. And uh, they say you should drink it in the morning whenever vim and vigour is required. Mm-hmm. And uh, Harry Craddock mm. famously says four of these taken in succession will unrevive the corpse again. So... <laughs> It was a, a yeah. bit of a hangover cure. He wasn't reading his RSA, was he? he w- <laughs> Obviously not. Didn't have to do it in those days, <laughs> he did he? He was reading it backwards. That's yeah, yeah. The, the problem is... But, so what's, um, in, what's in this drink? So gin. Yes. Uh, lillet, which in those days would have been keener lillet, so a bitter sort of semi-sweet vermouth. Mm. Um, absinthe, lemon juice and Cointreau. Gotcha. And um, and this was and where would we find would, we would have found this? This is in London, cr- created by um, Harry Craddock yes. at the American Bar at the Savoy Hotel. And where is the Savoy Hotel in, in on London? On the Strand, on the Strand, and darling. Oh. Obviously, taxis in London. Yes, their turning circle is governed by getting around the very small roundabout in front of the Savoy. Really? Yeah, I never knew that. By law. Oh, that smells good. All right, and uh, so this comes from uh, from London during um, Prohibition. And can we quickly just backtrack? It's uh, 12.48 here on 3 R F M. And one of the things we wanted to just um, just maybe look back on was the fact that Britain, the sun didn't set on that British <laughs> empire at that stage and it was one of the most successful empires in the world. And, um, it, and it had access to so much amazing stuff. I mean, it was in its way like Holland of the sort of 1800s. It was, and, th- and there we go. And let's look at the gin and tonic, and we look at the amount of botanicals, first of all, that come from all around the world that flavour the gin, and I think that's quite extraordinary. We should maybe just talk about that for 30 seconds if we could. Yeah, well, absolutely. I have a sip of this. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. And, and it's London and England of that sort of late 1800s, early 1900s that sees gin come into its own. Um, oh, it's big, isn't it? It's not bad. It's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> 
Corpse Reviver. Wow, that is great. The bitters are just great behind yeah, it all, aren't they? Yeah, it that, that Sorry, nice anyway, uh, go on. So the gin, is, you know, anyone who's a scholar of gin knows that it's around 1850 that you start to get good gin, but it's really mm. not that popular. It's, it's loved by the Navy and there's a sort of set of cool, rich people who are into it. But mm. it's really this time during Prohibition mm. when gin becomes the, the, the phenomenon that it is. And we're seeing it nowadays where we're seeing this sort of second gin revolution. But the first gin revolution really happened around this time in London. And the Tanqueray bottle. Yes, the green, is, beautiful. Is inspired by and the shape is a three-piece cocktail shaker, the shape of the Tanqueray bottle. And that was designed and released during this sort of era between the two wars in England. And it was because gin was the cocktail mm. ingredient of the world. And it was the first sort of mass-produced and massly embraced sort of white spirit. Indeed. So Prohibition had a great effect on the City of London. We'll find out where this modern City of London sits in the pantheon of cocktail making. And uh, we looked in the past... And now we look at the present and the future. And London is where this current cocktail love affair began again. And it was sort of, I guess, late 80s, early 90s. And then it really took off in the mid 90s. And it was especially people like like Dick Bradsell, who's sort of been highlighted as one of the godfathers of the modern sort of cocktail culture. Why you got Dale DeGroff in New York saying, hey, let's use fresh ingredients for a change. And that changed everything in, in New York. Brilliant. In London, similar thing going on with Dick Bradsaw, but also he was really looking at some of the classical structures and saying, you know, what makes a cocktail? Let's break it down to the simplest sort of form. And a cocktail that for me sums it up is the Bramble, which is now available right around the world. The what? The Bramble? The Bramble, created by Dick Bradsaw. Take a big glass, you put in gin and lemon juice, a little splash of sugar, give it a good churn with crushed ice, and then you, you drizzle creme de mure, the, the, the blackberry liqueur over the top. Garnish it with blackberries and lemon slices, and it's so simple, it's so tasty, and it's become a modern classic. And it's a drink that he created in the late 1980s at um, Fred's Club in Soho in London. And it was, you know, that's where it sort of starts. It was the end of the 80s, sort of super colourful, crazy, sugar-fueled, you know, rocket water that just had no... Uh, you know, not a lot of sound sophistication. The, the sound and the fury signifying nothing. That's right. To, yeah. to requote Shakespeare. And then you just, you had this huge sort of phenomena of mm. amazingly great bars kicking in. So, but what it, to me, it seems that most cocktails, or like a recipe and things, is like getting that bliss point right between sweet and sour. Sweet, sour, alcohol, water, all of those sort of coming together mm. to give you that... That balance. That balance, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what it's all about, like, isn't you know, it, really? It's just like seasoning a drink, mm. uh, seasoning a dish, you know, yeah, just yeah. like food. So, getting that bliss, yeah, the right, yes. And definitely you can see that what's happened in America with the sort of uh, prohibition bars in the US that's become a new sort of theme really gets, I guess, challenged and it's a rivalry between New York and London that's really driven that in that if you looked in the year 2000, London, you know, far and away, cocktail capital of the world... And New York really looked at that and said, oh, we're not happy about this. Mm. And New York changed. And in 10 years, I would say New York is now probably right up there. I, I mean, it depends who you ask as to whether New York or London sort of the cocktail capital of the world, but they're really vying for it. And that rivalry gives you this sort of great dynamic and great inspiration and great challenges. I would also say that London now has gone more experimental. 
New York has become very classical, looking at their incredibly rich cocktail history. And London's sort of gone way out there. You've got bars like Kalu Calais in London, which is inspired by Alice in Wonderland. And, you know, you can order a cocktail served in a gramophone, which I just love the whole idea of that. Um, you've also got... Really? Yeah. So cocktail uh, served in a, gra- in a gramophone. Could you, could you obviously elaborate share, on that? It's not for one person. How do you but, serve a cocktail in a gramophone? <laughs> you start like what taking a, a big wooden gramophone box. Yeah, and I, you, I got you, that. You hinge it open and you yeah. line it so it's waterproof and you fill it with ice and cocktail and then you carefully close it and you can put straws down the, down the top. It's, it's hilarious. Bizarre. Bizarre. And that's, it is you know, bizarre. And maybe, okay, and so let me just paraphrase very, very quickly. So um, across the Atlantic in New York, they have become a, a repository of, of the past, of, of, of the grand, of, of greatness of the past, while over here in London we have people like, as you sort of point out, this great book, which we, has been mentioned before in the show, Heston Blumen's Bartender. Yeah, Tony so. Canigliaro. And I think in a way, certainly in the bar world, his name is now probably, you know, big enough to say he's Tony rather than he's Heston's bartender. Yeah, okay. Has, All know, right. No, but I'm just trying to position it for maybe those that... Uh, who aren't bartenders. And yeah, aren't exactly. Geeks uh, in that sense. But he's got a bar in London, 69 Colbrook Row. And it's very experimental, really out there. And there's a drink that they serve there that, for me, I just love. And it sums up, I think, for me, everything about Tony C, which is that it's experimental flavours, experimental ideas served in a very traditional manner. Mm. And there's nothing more traditional than lipstick rose cocktail. Oh, yeah, this was good. This cocktail, I love this. And this is where you're taking bad emotion and you're twisting it to create a more intense, enjoyable experience. So Mm. this is a champagne cocktail. It's, it's rose vodka, it's raspberry and violet syrup, bitters, champagne and grapefruit twist. But the kicker... The kicker here... ...is that it's served, which I just love. A champagne flute <laughs> that bears the lipstick's traces. That's right. It's got to, a big yeah. lip smack yeah. right across the top of the glass. And he actually makes a beeswax lipstick. And he has a lip... Shaped rubber stamp. Oh, so it's not the bartender on. kissing his no, glass. No, it's not the bartender. God for that. <laughs> he has a stamp. Jeeves put that down. Yes. But it is the final flavour that brings everything together is in this beeswax lipstick. So on the side. So you it's, get the glass. It's like the salt on a margarita. And the glass has got a lipstick mark on it, which is, we've, I'm sure all of us have either had or experienced or heard of And that, promptly know. sent back. Yeah, send my glass back. That it's got dude. lipstick on it. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas he's turned that into. You know, the, the coup de gras, the, the, the garnish of the beverage. So what's, it, what's, what, what, so what's the flavour in the lipstick? So it's it's raspberry again, but raspberry. I mean, you know, it's really inspired by perfume and he has an obsession with perfume and it's all that sort of stuff. So Well, we were looking, Matt and I were having a bit of a, a thumb through uh, at the beginning of the show and there was something with white truffle uh, that oh, was yeah, in yep, there. Yep. No, he does, uh, he does both white and black truffle martinis. Yeah. You know, he also does like he does a grape seed tincture because it gives what? you this incredible dry uh, tannin a in, grape in seed your what? mouth tincture. So he oh tincture of yeah, grape seed. So oh, I can imagine that. And, and it gives you this dryness, and he uses that with vermouth to make a martini that's really dry. That gives you this sort of you know almost chewy sort of tannin in your mouth. Three minutes before the end of the show, Sebastian, if we were going to just parachute you into London right now, we've got a Hercules just circling the uh, the capital at the moment, and we've just pushed you out. Luckily, the parachute works. Now, where do you want to land and jump into a bar, Bond-like? Two, two, two uh, parts hello. of London. My name's Sebastian. Um, that it, where it's all happening. Where, it's, where? it's It's either going to be, you know, 
in Soho, in that part of town, in the, in the centre of the city, mm. where there's still so much happening. Yeah. You know, 69 Cobalt Grove is just on the east of that, or into Shoreditch. And despite the fact that Shoreditch is, you know, over full of hipsters, yes. the bars are fantastic and they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. There's a place about to open there probably next month where they're not even having ice. What drink do you want? Oh, I'm probably going to go to... Kalu Kalei and try to get into the Jub Jub room where they have the cocktail. The, the cabinet. <laughs> Jub Jub room. They have the cabinet of curiosities and in there are various oh, bottled it. cocktails. You've got to be a member. You don't pay. You just open it and pour yourself some and you don't know what it'll be until you open the cabinet. I love that. That sounds wondrous. The Jub- it sounds so English, doesn't it? The Jub Jub room. From, from the makers of Alice in Wonderland. Exactly. Doesn't it? Yeah. I love it. Uh, Sebastian, always... Hi, this is Cam Smith, and you've been listening to the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. 